Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Joseph Esposito, the author of Dinner in Camelot, the night America's greatest scientists, writers, and scholars partied at the Kennedy White House. Joseph, thanks for being here with me. Well, thank you, Rebecca. I'm, I'm delighted to be talking with you today. So I'm hoping you could start out by talking a little bit about how you got interested in this topic and this night at the White at the Kennedy White House and share a little bit about how how you, this came to be, this book came to be. Well, first, I, I met John Kennedy when I was a 10-year-old boy in October of 1960. I spoke with him, got his autograph on the cover of a Saturday evening post with a drawing of him by Norman Rockwell. And that really sparked a, a lifelong interest in uh, uh, for me in politics and government and history. And I eventually went on to serve in three presidential administrations. So that was a that was certainly a factor. Another reason um, was that my wife's great 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 grandfather was James Hoban, who was the architect responsible for building the White House. So I had been interested in writing uh, about the White House and about its history, and this was a vehicle for me to incorporate that. But uh, most of all. I was absorbed by the story of the Nobel dinner. And this is an amazing story in and of itself. There was this fantastic collection of intellectuals, scientists, writers, scholars. There were 49 Nobel prize winners honored that night. And many of the others who were there were equally as distinguished. So it was literally a who's who of American intellectuals at the mid 20th century. And in fact, in his remarks at the dinner, President Kennedy said that, I think this is the most extraordinary collection of talent, of human knowledge that has ever been gathered together at the White House, with the possible exception of when Thomas Jefferson dined alone. Interestingly, that's what most people know about this dinner, but I thought there was much more to be said about the dinner. Um, the lives of these people were intertwined, uh, sometimes long before the dinner. Uh, the relationships um, were formed at the dinner and, and old ones were renewed. And uh, it was the start of uh, other relationships that uh, people at the dinner would have in subsequent years, in fact, going on for decades. And finally, uh, and I think this is really important, it's not only an interesting story, but an and, and and a very fascinating glimpse into the past, it's really an opportunity to look back uh, to observe when Washington, D.C. did work, when people of conflicting views could work together, they could socialize together, they could respect one another. The greatest example here is that Linus Pauling, um, a Nobel laureate, had written several strident letters to President Kennedy about a, a stalled nuclear test ban 
he and his wife, Ava Helen Pauling, had picketed President Kennedy in front of the White House that day and the, the, the day before as well. And so uh, in the mid-afternoon of Sunday, April 29th, 1962, they went over to the Willard Hotel, a couple of blocks from the White House, changed their clothes and went to the White House for dinner. And President Kennedy um, in the receiving line said, uh, Dr. Pauling, how do you do? You've been around the White House a couple of days already, haven't you? And then before introducing Pauling to Mrs. Kennedy, he added, Dr. Pauling, I hope that you will continue to express your opinions. So thinking about that today, it's, it's rather amazing. So those are some of the reasons why I became uh, excited about uh, researching and writing this book. And so you start out, before you really get to the dinner, of sort of setting us up with what's going on in America at that time, right? America in transition is your first chapter. And you talk a little bit about that and sort of where we're at in the Kennedy administration as well when you move in in those first couple chapters. So can you talk a little bit about sort of setting the scene for this book and for this dinner? Well, the, the, the intent, of course, uh, as, a, as a writer here was to indeed set the scene so that there, there was a background to uh, where we were. It was just actually midpoint uh, through the Kennedy administration, uh, April of 1962. And um, the, the point was to look at um, all the issues, both foreign and domestic, that were confronting the Kennedy administration uh, and how he had dealt with them. 1961 uh, started out on a, on a real high with the, with the inauguration, but... Um, but there were a lot of challenges, and um, the Kennedy administration, the Kennedy White House, uh, had been working to, to, to grapple with, with some issues uh, and really show their expertise. I mean, there was the Bay of Pigs uh, fiasco. Uh, there, were, there, were other, there were other challenges. 1962 was starting to become a little better, and uh, there was a bit of a high uh, – experienced uh, in uh, uh, just a few weeks before the dinner when uh, John Glenn had orbited the earth and uh, had shown Americans prowess uh, in the space race. And John Glenn was at the dinner. He was the hero of the hour. Um, so um, I thought it was important to discuss, uh, to really provide a snapshot of, of America uh, at the time of this dinner, and uh, the vehicle that I used was um, uh, the idea of going through the New York Times on a train ride from New York to Washington, D.C., which uh, Diana and Lionel Trilling would have done. And so you also talk a, a bit about the importance of Jacqueline Kennedy, and I'm I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about her. So you ha talk about her role in the White House, her role, and you mentioned it earlier, your interest in sort of that architecture of the White House, but her sort of reviving and um, redecorating the White House and, and making the White House this sort of uh, the space that it used to be, bringing it back to what it used to be. So can you talk a bit about Jacqueline Kennedy as a first lady, what you saw and her important role in sort of the White House and the sort of social atmosphere around the White House? So much attention has been focused on, on, on Jacqueline Kennedy as a, as a figure of glamour. 
and she certainly was that. And um, she captured the imagination of America. She was a, a, a young um, first lady, a marked contrast to uh, the previous first lady. Um, and there were these the, these events uh, at at the White House dinners and and um, performances. But she was also a person, uh, I believe, of, um, of considerable depth in understanding art and art history and its import, and the importance of it um, to the country. Uh, on February 14th, 1962, roughly two months before this dinner, she um, did her f- famous tour of the White House, televised tour of the White House on CBS. And it was a it was an unveiling of the refurbishing that she and her colleagues had undertaken over the past year, and it was uh, it was widely acclaimed. She actually uh, got a uh, got an Emmy for it for for the documentary. She established the, the office of White House curator. She established the Fine Arts Committee in in the White House to 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 research and basically cajole people into making donations of, of lost artifacts from the White House, uh, furnishings and, and, and paintings. Um, she uh, developed a, a handbook for uh, the White House, and um, she also launched the White House Historical Association, which is still in operation and is quite vibrant. She wanted to make um, the White House a, a living museum, and I think that was an incredibly important uh, contribution. She continued to have this interest in in art and um, and literature and art art history uh, after she left the White House. She later became a successful editor, uh, book book editor. She also was um, uh, an influential. Um, person in helping to uh, save Grand Central Station in New York from the wrecking ball. Uh, the idea of, of historic preservation uh, was very important to her. I came away from uh, the research here having a much uh, deeper and greater uh, appreciation for her contribution uh, during those thousand days in the White House. Right. And so before we start to talk a little bit more about some of the key figures that you really go in depth with at the dinner, I'm wondering if you can just sort of give an overview of the dinner itself, um, what the plan was for the dinner. You you mentioned that, you know, it was the Nobel dinner and they brought in um, 47, right? 47 Nobel, 40 or 49. Well, there were there were forty nine people honored, and uh, George Marshall and uh, Ernest Hemingway were honored in uh, were honored posthumously. Their their widows were there. Right. So, can you just sort of set the scene for that, and then we can talk about some of the um, more controversial people or some of the people who were at this dinner? The White House um, uh, uh, staff had uh, been engaged in a number of events there at the White House uh, in, in the latter part of 1961, particularly. And uh, there was an, an interest in broadening the, uh, the, the participation f- from 
say the arts, surely the arts community. John Kennedy um, and his um, staff had, from the very outset, wanted to uh, be, have the White House be a very welcoming place for the arts, broadly speaking, for for artists, for people in the literary world. And uh, they were invited to the uh, to the uh, to have a special position at the inauguration. Uh, Robert Frost, who was at this dinner, of course, uh, gave a, uh, a a recitation of uh, of a poem at the inauguration, um, and it was decided that it was a good idea. It would be a, a, a an excellent idea to uh, also uh, honor the scientists. And so most of these Nobel laureates were scientists. Uh, there were a few in peace, two, two Nobel Peace Prize winners, and there was Pearl Buck, who was a, a Peace Prize uh, was a uh, Nobel laureate in literature. But for the bulk of these people were were distinguished scientists um, in in physics or chemistry or biology or or medicine. And uh, the, the the idea developed uh, in the fall of 1961, late fall. And uh, it was worked on by Arthur Schlesinger, who was an aide there in the White House and a, a notable historian. And they put this dinner together and compiled various lists of literary figures, academics, um, scientists, uh, and college presidents and, and other people to, to invite. And uh, this was really an opportunity to pay a tribute to a great sense of accomplishment uh, for these Nobel Prize winners, uh, for their contribution to uh, their fields and to the United States, and also to be a sense of encouragement to uh, young people as well, which President Kennedy mentioned in his remarks that night. And so the dinner, as you said, brought in a number of different people. And so I'm wondering if you can talk, you highlight some of them. Um, so, um, and one of them that you highlight is Oppenheimer and how, and the, the dinner's influence or the dinner's impact for him. So I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about having Oppenheimer at this dinner and what that meant and sort of his position at that time. Oppenheimer was the, uh, of course, the father of the uh, of the of the uh, atomic bomb and was uh the scientific head are we still here oh okay i'm sorry i <laughs> i my screen kind of went blank here <laughs> i'll just start that over <laughs> um so i'll start now um uh, oppenheimer uh of course, was the father of the atomic bomb, and he had been the, the scientific director at Los Alamos, and uh, he, he was extraordinarily successful in in the uh, the job that he was he was given. Um, but he had become rather controversial, and uh, he lost his security clearance in 1954. The question related to really to his prudence and perhaps even his loyalty. He was suspected of being soft on communism in, in the Soviet Union. Um, and part of that was because he had opposed the, uh, uh, the development of a hydrogen bomb. So Kennedy's invitation that night represented the first part of his political redemption. Um, but not everyone, of course, was, was, was pleased with that. One, one conservative Republican senator railed that Alger Hiss might, be, uh, might follow um, Oppenheimer to, to the dinner. Um, 
Oppenheimer had continued to work at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, but he had been removed from official Washington. And so it was a period of time when he was in the, the political wilderness. He did have friends, though, uh, in, on the White House staff and uh, Dr. Glenn Seaborg, who was the, uh, the uh, head of the Atomic Energy Commission, uh, Arthur Schlesinger and others. And they were interested in, in seeing what they considered a transgression uh, addressed and to, um, to help Oppenheimer get back in the good graces of official Washington. So this was a, it turned out to be a, a, essentially a, a two-step process for Oppenheimer. And he was definitely controversial. Um, but the first step was inviting him to, the, to this dinner. And uh, Oppenheimer is deeply appreciative of being invited. And uh, later uh, that year, uh, well, actually it was in 1963, he had been selected for this prestigious Enrico Fermi Award uh, that was presented by the uh, by the president, and uh, the actual award was going to be presented on November twenty second, nineteen sixty three, and uh, I think it was actually November twenty first, nineteen sixty three. But Kennedy was in Dallas, so they, they had they delayed the presentation of the award, and of course Kennedy died, and Lyndon Johnson wound up uh, presenting the award in December. Uh, in 1963. But um, Oppenheimer never got his security clearance back. And in fact, at the dinner, the Nobel dinner, uh, Glenn Seaborg asked him if he had been interested in, in trying to get his security clearance back and going through the, uh, the process, having another hearing. And Oppenheimer emphatically said no, that he was, he was really done with that. But, but the idea that he would be honored, he had actually made a tremendous contribution uh, to American science. Uh, and um, this, this overture by the Kennedy White House was an opportunity to present uh, Oppenheimer in a, uh, is in a, in a, in a more, um, uh, a, 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 a more realistic light. Right. And so you have a couple of other scientists, but, and you mentioned Linus Pauling earlier, but I'm wondering if you can uh, maybe expound a bit on Linus Pauling and the importance of him at the dinner. You, you mentioned that he and his wife uh, were protesting earlier in the day, but can you talk a little bit more about him at that time and what was going on and why it was so important that he was there and being honored? Well, Pauling was really a fascinating figure. Uh, and in fact, um, uh, of all these people, all these guests at the dinner, m most of them very distinguished, uh, I found Pauling one of the, the two or three most interesting uh, individuals to, to, to delve into, to research and to write about. Um, an extremely talented person. He had received the 1954 Nobel Prize in Chemistry. Uh, he was also nominated and almost got uh, a Nobel Prize uh, in medicine, and um, as a result of the uh, his social activism, uh, he wound up getting a actually getting a second Nobel Prize. That he was the first American to be so honored with two Nobel prizes, and they were in in very different fields: chemistry and peace. Pauling uh, was um, 
uh, a very dedicated scientific researcher. His wife, Ava Helen Pauling, uh, was a social activist, and she really encouraged him to get more engaged in this area. And in the 1940s and 1950s, uh, he, he did so, and uh, he was very much concerned about uh, about uh, world peace. He was concerned about uh, uh, the, the 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 prospect of uh, of, uh, of atomic annihilation, and. Uh, he was involved in, in a variety of, of initiatives to, uh, to try to, uh, to, to curb uh, the use of nuclear weapons and, and, and reduce the prospect of war. He had become controversial as well. He had been investigated by, uh, by the Senate, uh, the uh, Senate Judiciary's uh, committee subcommittee on Inter internal security. He had been investigated by the House on American Activities Committee, um, but he was a he was a very um, steadfast um, individual. He was somewhat self centered. Uh, he was self righteous. Uh, in, in some instances, he could be difficult to get along with, but. But he had a certain sense of idealism, and he really stuck to it. He had uh, seen potential in President Kennedy and actually supported him for president in 1960. Uh, but he had written a number of letters to him uh, uh, preceding the, uh, the, the Nobel dinner. Uh, in one letter, he compared him to Hitler because... Uh, it, he wasn't making sufficient progress in, in disarmament. But um, he, he could compartmentalize things, too. Uh, he can go and pick it and then go into the White House and have a good time. He said he thoroughly enjoyed himself. In fact, um, Pauling and uh, Linus Pauling and, and Ava Helen Pauling um, led this, this impromptu spur-of-the-moment dancing. It wasn't dancing wasn't anticipated that night, but they, they were in the hallway and they just started dancing and a few other people joined in. Um, Pauling was, uh, it was an interesting individual. And uh, later on in life, he lived a very long life. He lived into his 90s. Uh, he had been a, become a strong component of the value of vitamin C. And I think some people tend to remember him for that as well. Right. So besides the scientists, there were also writers there. And so I'm wondering if you can talk, I think probably the most controversial writer that was there at that time and later was um, James Baldwin. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about James Baldwin and, and James Baldwin's role there and, and, and how then, um, this is sort of a longer question, but I think you, you talk a bit about how James Baldwin played a role with Robert Kennedy as well, and Robert Kennedy's um, work with the like the civil rights movement and learning more about the civil rights movement. So, can you talk a bit about James Baldwin? Uh, James Baldwin um, was along with uh, Linus Pauling and 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 Jacqueline Kennedy. I think the three most interesting figures at that dinner. There were many distinguished people, but what, they were the three people that I found uh, the most the most fascinating uh, for, for different reasons. Uh, James Baldwin had achieved 
a considerable amount of success in the in the 1950s. He had been an expatriate writer, but he had had a, he had written a number of important books. And by the early 60s, he was starting to become more of a social activist. He um, met Robert Kennedy at the dinner that night, and that was uh, one of those relationships uh, that was particularly important as, as an outcome of the dinner. And a year later, um, Robert Kennedy, who was uh, Attorney General, and Baldwin got together. First, they got together for a brief meeting at uh, Robert Kennedy's house in um, McLean, Virginia, Hickory Hill. And they met, they met uh, uh, for a short time because Baldwin's plane was delayed, but Kennedy said to him, can you assemble a group of African-American leaders the next day in, at my apartment in New York City? And they did, and it was a very uh, interesting meeting that took place. Harry Belafonte was there, Lorraine Hansberry, Rip Torn, uh, Dr. Kenneth Clark, a sociologist, uh, a psychologist, was there, and it was a very, very contentious meeting. Robert Kennedy wanted to hear what the issues were related to African Americans. And to some extent, he was expecting to be uh, praised for the work that he and his brother had done in the area of civil rights. But what he got was uh, a considerable criticism uh, and uh, a certain sense of of um, disappointment from the people who were assembled, and they they talked about how um, really they talked about discrimination. They talked about segregation, about civil rights, and about how much more work had been done. And and Robert Kennedy took it as a, as a personal affront, really. And after a meeting that lasted about three hours. He left unhappy. His guests left unhappy, and um, it was a—it was, as I say, a very contentious meeting. But it was also a very significant meeting because, uh, very quickly, Robert Kennedy realized what they had been saying was was in fact true, and something that he needed to 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 process more. And his brother, John Kennedy delivered his famous civil rights address uh, only a few, uh, a few weeks later in, in June of 1963. And Robert Kennedy was the only one of his advisors who, was in, who had encouraged him to do this uh, civil rights address. Civil rights address was uh, the vehicle where, where he laid out what eventually became the Civil Rights Act of, of 1964. So uh, in the book, I talk about Baldwin, and it's a brief biographical sketch and about his, his journey and his writings. And um, interestingly, and I think more and more people are coming to realize this, that, that James Baldwin's commentary was as, as valid and as insightful uh, half a century ago as it, as it, is, as it is today. Uh, so I talk about Baldwin's uh, writing about his, uh, his, his his trip to the South, where he 
you know, he was, he was, a, he was, he had grown up in Harlem and he wasn't familiar with the South. And so he, he had become educated. He also had become educated about what was going on in the United States uh, in, in the 1950s be, uh, because he had lived abroad and really had been removed. So uh, he had gotten an education uh, about the, the racial tensions around the country and so I talk about that, and I talk about this this relationship that was formed between uh, Kennedy and Robert Kennedy and, and Baldwin, and that's another uh, one of those those interactions uh, as a result of the dinner that was that made the dinner important. In addition to being a fascinating glimpse at this who's who of American intellectuals at the mid-century, right? So. You also talk about the fact that this was not just they sat around and had dinner. There was a presentation and performance honoring Hemingway and um, George Marshall after. And so can you talk a little bit about that, that piece of it? Um, was it Frederick Marsh who March who did the the sort of performance of some of the pieces for something from the Marshall plan, as well as some of Hemingway's work. And so why were these two honored and what was that like at the, that night? Well, it had been decided that there would be some after dinner um, literary presentation. And so Frederick Marsh had been invited to, to do that, uh, that uh, the presentation. There was actually three people who were, who were honored in that, in that period, it was uh, Sinclair Lewis. Very briefly, Sinclair Lewis was not a presence in any way in, in, at the dinner. Uh, George Marshall uh, was. There was a brief uh, a presentation of his his commencement address at Harvard University, where he outlined the the basics of the Marshall Plan. But the bulk of the literary presentation was uh, an unpublished work. Of, by, by Ernest Hemingway, which eventually, I believe it was in 1970, was published uh, um, um, as Islands in the Stream. Mary, uh, Mary Welsh Hemingway, uh, Ernest Hemingway's fourth and last wife, uh, had, um, had some sort of interaction with the Kennedy White House, and that was after... Um, Hemingway had Ernest Hemingway had died. Uh, the uh, the Hemingway house in outside of Havana uh, contained a lot of manuscripts and a lot of material, personal material. And Mary Hemingway and jo uh, John Kennedy had uh, a mutual friend, and that was William Walton. And William Walton was was a, an intermediary who helped the uh, Mary Hemingway get uh, possessions. Uh, out of out of Cuba once it became a a, a, a Castro um, um, a ruled country, and um, Mary Hemingway had been interested in meeting uh, John Kennedy, and John Kennedy had been interested in meeting Mary Hemingway. So it had been decided that that uh, she would be at the dinner and that there would be the, the, the Hemingway presentation. John Kennedy had a great respect for Hemingway. They never met, but they, they corresponded a little bit. And at the outset of Profiles in Courage, uh, um, John Kennedy on his first page of the book um, refers to uh, 
Hemingway's definition of courage. And Heming and John Kennedy considered himself a writer. They both were Pulitzer Prize winners. Of course, Kennedy was not a Nobel Prize winner. But um, um, it was a natural for for Hemingway to be to be honored. Uh, so Tish Baldridge, the social secretary, had worked with uh, Mary Hemingway and. It was, it was very important because Mary Hemingway was the keeper of the flame, and this was part of her effort as the literary uh, um, manager uh, of, of her uh, late husband uh, to, to provide uh, some, ad some additional uh, manuscripts and, 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 uh, and, and to keep, basically keep his, his name out there. Originally, they were going to they were going to do the the, the uh, a production of, of what was the Killers, which would have been a, a really a, a weird connection um, uh, for for the dinner, but uh, th they decided on this this manuscript and she uh, uh, to be used, and she worked with Fre uh, Frederick March and Frederick March, uh, uh, by all accounts, did a superb uh, job. Uh, was very nervous. Uh, but he, he he did a fine job, and uh, the reception for the Hemingway excerpt was not very well received. I mean, the reception was not very good. Uh, William Styron was one of those people who thought it was terrible, um, but but others as well. Um, so interestingly, there were two people there at the dinner, and this is a. a a commentary on the the relationships uh, that were, in some cases, um, hard to uh, hard to know. But um, there there were two people at the dinner there who had unfortunate relationships with Ernest Hemingway, who was in some ways uh, especially honored at the dinner. Uh, Catherine Ann Porter whose book, uh, A Ship of Fools, hit the New York Times bestseller list at number one that day for the first time. Catherine Ann Porter and uh, Ernest Hemingway met once, and that was at Sylvia Beach's uh, a bookshop in Paris, uh, Shakespeare and Company. And Sylvia Beach said to, they were both in the, in the, in the room together, and uh, she, Sylvia Beach said, um, "I'd like, I'd like the two, two great young writers to 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 meet one another." And Hemingway, being Hemingway, was very upset that he would be um, put in the same category as this unknown Catherine Ann Porter, and uh, he got very angry and he stomped out, and that was uh, that was the end of their <laughs> their brief. Uh, the brief relationship. Uh, John Dos Passos and Ernest Hemingway had been great friends for, for a while. They had uh, uh, became, become acquainted uh, during World War I, uh, and they had a falling out, a serious falling out uh, as a result of the Spanish-American, or sorry, not the Spanish-American War, but the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the Spanish Civil War. Uh, and, uh, and, and and for other personal reasons, and so there was a, a very bitter uh, break in their in their relationship. And uh, he had 
uh, Hemingway sent a very um, unpleasant letter to uh, to to uh, Dos Passos, basically saying, "I don't want to deal with somebody like you anymore." Uh, so there were two people who had rather rocky relationships with uh, with Ernest Hemingway there, and two notable writers, Catherine Ann Porter and John Dos Passos. All right. So you talk a bit about the um, presentation, and then you talk about this after party that that went on and that a select few sort of came to. And I think that relates back to how you talk about, and, and then you go on to talk about how their lives sort of become connected. So I'm wondering if you can just talk a bit about this after party and how this after party um, set up relationships as well that went on well past this dinner. Well, about a dozen people were invited up to the, um, the white house residence, the uh, yellow oval room, which was a, uh, was a, a place of refuge both for, for Jackie Kennedy and 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 for uh, and for John Kennedy and this was the the the, the part of the evening where where Jackie Kennedy uh, could basically uh, relax and and not be uh, really in the public eye and so Robert Frost was there Lionel and Diana Trilling was there were there and uh, Rose and uh, and Bill Styron were there and, and, and several others. Um, and we get a lot of, uh, I was fortunate to be able to interview uh, Rose Styron, um, who also did the foreword for the book. And uh, she provided um, a lot of information about that, uh, about that event, about that, that, that aspect of the evening. And, and William Styron himself uh, wrote about it. And, um, it was a, a short period of time, perhaps an hour. They smoked cigars. They talked, um, and um, it was a, a matter of, uh, of of people relaxing and getting acquainted. Robert Frost was uh, was kind of a uh, a real magnet for people there. He was a magnet for people throughout the uh, throughout the evening because he was, of course, uh, he, although an octogenarian, he was a very distinguished poet and and somebody was who was widely respected. Uh, some additional people came um, who hadn't been at the dinner. Uh, Robert uh, or, or uh, Sergeant Shriver was there, who was not at the dinner. Um, uh, two of uh, uh, President Kennedy's sisters were there, and uh, they relaxed and they talked and they talked about literature and they and they talked about sailing. And uh, it was where the uh, uh, the idea of the Styrons sailing with with the Kennedys took place for the first time and um, shortly after that they did go sailing that summer and it was the start of a uh, a 50 year plus friendship between the Kennedy family and the Styron family um, a lot of funny stories uh, uh, associated with, with the dinner uh, and many of those were uh, conveyed by uh, William Styron in, in his letters or in in, a, in, a, in an article he wrote called uh, um, Havana's and Camelot, and also by uh, Diana Trilling, the literary critic, um, who wrote an article that was pu published posthumously in the New Yorker in the 1990s. And uh, initially, neither the Trillings nor the uh, Styrons, who were first uh, the first people to uh, enter the, the yellow overroom, 
knew exactly why they were there. <laughs> and, uh, and they waited and, uh, eventually, uh, eventually the president came, but before the president came, uh, William Styron sat in the, the president's rocking chair and, um, he had to be cajoled by Arthur Schlesinger to leave the rocking chair because the president had entered the room. Uh, but there's some funny stories about it. And I talk, uh, I talk about it in, uh, in the book and, uh, Styron, um, had been, uh, uh, taking an antibiotic and he also had wound up, uh, having some drinks. So he was, uh, by his own admission was, uh, was a little lightheaded and uh, some of his remarks were rather caustic but also quite humorous and so and you so you wrap up the book and you mentioned this sort of at the beginning of the interview but you wrap up the book in why this dinner is so important right now right and why it's really important in your epilogue what we need to those lessons that we learned so i don't know if there's anything you want to add to that in sort of a wrap up to this book and why this dinner at, at the Kennedy White House, this one dinner was so important and is so important to us to sort of think about now as well and the role of this dinner. If there's anything, last sort of elements, you last things you want to add. I think one of the most important things is that, that um, we need to remember the importance of um, really honoring our, our, our scientists, our writers, our intellectuals a certain sense of intellectualism today in, in the United States, I think. And uh, these people uh, who were at the, the Nobel dinner uh, made in incredible contributions to this country. And in some cases, they were immigrants uh, fleeing uh, re repressive regimes. And um, they made contributions in, in, um, in, in physics, in chemistry, in biology, and medicine. It's just a staggering uh, a contribution to, to to American society and, and to the world. And so I think there is a, a, an important argument to be made that we need to have this respect and admiration and uh, for people who have achieved so much, not only for what they have achieved, which, which is important, but, but also for encouragement uh, for for young people, and I think President Kennedy understood that. And certainly, I, I would chime in on this whole issue of, of polarization in America. Uh, I th I think that this dinner shows that there were people there who actually disagreed with President Kennedy. Uh, people who um, uh, questioned his his uh, his judgment on certain things. But, but there was a, a, a sense of, of common purpose, too, and that the idea of being at the White House and interacting and to having a dialogue and to be conciliatory uh, was something that was, was very important. And I think that there is a certain kind of uh, what I might call a Nobel spirit that uh, this country could rally back to. Your the book just um came it just came out correct. Uh, the official publication or is it is April third. Okay, so tomorrow is the official publication date. So you probably are not working on anything else, but I don't know if there are is there anything that you have coming up soon that you wanted to promote, or if you do have a new project you're already working on, is there any sort of last things you want to promote? 
before we finish up? Well, I'm I'm rather busy promoting this book. Uh, right. <laughs> I figured. <laughs> uh, so we have a I have a very full radio schedule this week and uh, uh, a, a national um, uh, book tour. Uh, going to be in San Francisco and Boston and Cape Cod and Washington and Richmond and Princeton and and talking about different aspects of the book, uh, sometimes about Kennedy, sometimes about Oppenheimer, um, and uh, and other people, Pearl Buck. Um, so I'm spending a lot of time on that. But I became so immersed in this issue of uh, this story about uh, Robert Kennedy and uh, and James Baldwin that uh, that I'm working on that as my next book. The uh, uh, Robert Kennedy, uh, James Baldwin, and the acrimonious meaning that changed the course of civil rights. Right. Interesting. Well, it's been really wonderful talking to you. It was this. It was really great to read about sort of this. And I agree, like this one time where intellectualism wasn't a bad thing. It wasn't a dirty word, right? Yes. Um, and so. I want to thank you for talking with me again. This was Joseph Esposito, the author of Dinner in Camelot, The Night America's Greatest Scientists, Writers, and Scholars Party at the Kennedy White House. Joseph, thanks for talking with me. Thank you, Rebecca. I, I enjoyed it. 